Plus. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Seville, Episode 3, The Cathedral, the Giralda and Santa Cruz. I grouped those three places together. They seem to be the main places to visit once you've been to the Alcazar, which we dealt with last week, and because taking the three of them together allows an episode in which we can talk about the three cultures that make up Seville, or the history of Seville, namely the Christian, the Arabic and the Jewish. So, the cathedral then. I think the main thing I want to stress about that is its absolutely ginormous enormity. Why is it so big? It's said, of course, that it's not by chance. It was built to celebrate the taking back of Seville from the Moors by the Christians, and so they very much wanted to stamp their own mark on the city, make it clear that they were back in charge now, and the Moors had been chased away. When the Christians first took Seville back in 1248, in fact, they decided to use the mosque as a church. But by 1401, they decided to knock it down and build their own church on the same site. They were so excited by this idea that legend has it that they said to one another, quote, let's construct a church so large that future generations will think that we were mad. Well, I think when you take one look at it, you've certainly got to agree that size is one of its main features. You could argue that it's the largest church in the world. If you measure these things by volume, I think that is in fact the case. So there it is, to give it its full title, the Cathedrale de Santa Maria de la Sede. Along with the Alcazar, one of the two most visited sites in the whole of Seville, and the trio of buildings, Cathedral, Giralda, Alcazar, forming a World Heritage Site. So, the plan for the episode then. We'll have a brief look at the history of the building, a very short rundown about some of the things to see when you visit the cathedral. That could obviously run to episode after episode, but intending to keep that quite brief, just give one or two pointers. Have a look at the outside of the building as well. It'd be an excuse to go to the Patio de los Naranchos, the orange patio, and the Giralda. But look too at the surrounding area, particularly in the direction of the little part of the city known as Santa Cruz. And unfortunately, looking at that will involve mentioning that terrible Spanish word, the Inquisition. So I'm going to briefly talk about that and then round off with one or two quotes from travellers who went to Santa Cruz and enjoyed it very much. So, let's make a start. And please try all the time I'm talking about the cathedral to keep that one salient fact in mind, its enormous size. Just to help along with that, I'm going to read a quotation from Théophile Gautier, a Frenchman who visited in the mid-19th century and found his own way of expressing how absolutely massive it was. He wrote, quote, It is a hollow mountain, Notre-Dame de Paris could walk without bending her head down the central nave, which is of a terrific height. And just to set the scene a little further, a second quotation from the 19th century, from 1828 in fact, when Washington Irvine went to visit, and when he was very impressed with the cathedral, and wrote down the fact that he really didn't think he'd seen anywhere more beautiful. His actual words went as follows. I do not think altogether I have ever been equally delighted with any building of the kind. It is so majestic, ample and complete, sumptuous in all its appointments, and noble and august in all its ceremonies. So let's go back to the beginning and just talk a little bit about the building of the cathedral. As I said, there was a mosque on this site that was built in the late 12th century, but when the Christians took Seville back in 1248, They used it as a church for a period, 
actually of over a 100 years, until something happened which made them rethink. And that was in 1356, an event known in many of the history books as, quote, seismic eruptions, so an earthquake, and that damaged the mosque and really provided a spur to think that it would have to be pulled down and rebuilt. Work began in 1401, the prayer hall was demolished, but they left some parts. So the courtyard, for example, which had been outside the mosque, the way that you approached it, the place where you stopped to wash and purify yourself before going in, that was left standing. That's what's now called the Patio de los Naranjos. The northern gate was left, that was the original entrance to the mosque. That wasn't damaged, so they left it standing. That's the gate which is now called the Puerta del Perdón, the the gate of forgiveness. So they gave it a Christian name, a Spanish name, but they left it standing. And the other part that was left, because it was also undamaged in the earthquake, was the tower. Referred to by Richard Ford, who wrote a handbook to Spain after travelling the length and breadth of the country in the 1830s, he referred to this tower as, quote, the great tower from whence the Muadin summoned the faithful to prayer. It was left, in fact, as a place to summon the faithful to prayer, but instead this time by more Christian means, i.e. it was turned into a bell tower, known today as the Giralda. So the big main part of the building was torn down, but they used the same base, the rectangular base of the old mosque, to build the new building, but they made sure that it was much higher, much taller, I saw in the rough guide this was described as a bid by the Christians to express, quote, conquest and domination, really make it clear that something bigger and better had come along. It's the pride of Seville that they can claim this is the world's largest cathedral, said to be so if you measure it by volume, although certainly you can argue that St Paul's in London or St Peter's in Rome are bigger if you measure by some other means. Anyway, Dispute its size you certainly can't, especially when you read that by the time it was completed in the early 16th century, 1506, it had no fewer than seven naves and, wait for it, 80 interior chapels. And that brings us nicely to the problem of, oh my goodness, if you go to visit, where are you going to start and how long are you going to spend there? I've decided to give just a very brief rundown of a very few places and things inside that I thought were unmissable and not spend hour after hour detailing every painting, sculpture, piece of gold and silverware, etc. So if you start with the very churchy bits, I think everyone would agree that the must-see wow moment is the Capilla Mayor, so the big chapel, the main focal point inside, where the altarpiece is. The world's biggest altarpiece, in fact. Again, possibly one or two other churches would dispute that depending how you measure it, but it's certainly right up there with the greatest. It's a place in the cathedral referred to in the Lonely Planet Guide as the jewel of the cathedral. Begun in 1482, it's a massive display of gold and gilt and polychromed wooden carvings. Over a thousand carvings, in fact, all biblical figures, many of them done by the Flemish sculptor Peter Duncart, for whom this was really his life's work. Sadly, he died before it was actually finished, so it was completed by other people, but he's always credited with the bulk of the work. And right in the centre, if you look carefully, you might see a tiny silver-plated image of the Virgin Mary, the Virgen de la Sede, she being the cathedral's patron. Good place to have your binoculars, actually, because you can't get right inside. There's a grill in front to stop you getting too close, and if you want a really good look at some of the statues then I think binoculars might be the way to go. 
or of course the camera with a good zoom lens. Okay, so that's one place you probably want to see. I just mentioned that there are 80 chapels in this building. Where are you going to start in choosing which ones to go and see? I think a lot of people would agree that perhaps the one to head for is the Capilla Real, or the Royal Chapel. Am I actually the only person who's only just realised that Real Madrid means Royal Madrid, as in football team? Anyway, the Royal Chapel. And the reason you might want to go there is because it contains a silver urn with the remains of Ferdinando III. He it was who took Seville back from the Moors, conquered it for the Christians again, so he's remembered as the great hero of the city, and buried right here in the cathedral, along with his wife Beatrice and his son, who's called in English, I've noticed, either Alfonso the Learned or Alfonso the Wise. Given that there are presumably another 79 chapels I haven't mentioned, I had a look through the cathedral's own guidebook, which runs to 96 pages of lovely colour photos and quite a lot of text, to see what chapel perhaps they would recommend. And I noticed that in a chapel called the Chapel of St. Hermengild, there is what they describe as, quote, without doubt the finest tomb in Seville Cathedral. Right, I thought, let's go and have a look at that. So that turns out to be the tomb of Cardinal Juan de Cervantes, who died in 1453, and it's described as being a magnificent example of Sevillian Gothic art. It's actually an alabaster tomb with an alabaster carved figure on the top of the cardinal himself, which, as it says in the guidebook, offers, quote, the startling realism of the recumbent figure whose head seems truly to press into the three pillows on which it rests. And it is true, it does look very real and lifelike and makes you feel quite close to Cardinal de Cervantes. But I think most visitors to the cathedral, certainly most foreign visitors, would agree that actually there is a tomb of somebody else in there that they're much more likely to have heard of and want to go and see that being the tomb of Christopher Columbus, or Cristobel Colón, as he was known in Spanish. He died in 1506, buried in fact in northern Spain, but his remains were moved several times. I think quite a lot of places were keen to have some of Christopher's remains, perhaps thinking ahead to the tourism industry. Anyway, there was some dispute about whether it really is him that's buried here or not. In fact, we're lucky in the 21st century that we can start finding out some of these things. DNA tests were done, and the result was the suggestion that actually some of the bones buried there are indeed his, others probably aren't. It would also seem to be the case that although some of him is buried here, not all of him is, and the idea is that the rest will be somewhere else, possibly in the Bahamas, possibly some at the monastery in Cartuja, across the other side of the river, in Seville. But anyway, this is certainly a massive, impressive memorial to him, a huge tomb, held aloft by four figures which represent the four kingdoms of Spain, they being Leon, Castile, Aragon and Navarre. And definitely a corner of the cathedral where you will see people clustered all the time, clicking photos, etc. I'm going to talk much more about Christopher Columbus in the next episode, when we'll be talking about Seville's Golden Age. So for the moment, let's leave him in repose there and move on to artwork. Another problem where to start with the artwork in the cathedral. There must be thousands and thousands of pieces of work, paintings and sculptures and gold and silverware and goodness knows what else. So I've picked out just three places or three things that I think perhaps I would go and have another look at if I went again. 
Firstly, I chose what I think might be the most civilian painting in the whole cathedral, and that's one by Goya, his painting of Santas Justa y Rufina, so the saints, Justa and Rufina, who are the patron saints of the city of Seville. The picture here, of the two of them, shows them with the Giralda in the background, and that's quite fitting, because it's said in the year 1756 the Giralda was in great danger, and an appeal was made to the two saints who duly saved it. So the fact that it's still standing today is said to be thanks to them, and here they are in glorious technicolour, painted by Goya and hanging in the cathedral. The guidebook very much stressed that you should go to the Sacrista Mayor, so the main sacristy, to see Zorbaran's painting of St. Teresa, and also a key, not any old key, but the key, which was presented to Ferdinando III by the Moors and Jews of the city, as they were surrendering to him and letting the Christians take over the city again. So definitely very much of historic interest. The most interesting thing to me about it, actually, was that I read that there's, well, I noticed there's Arabic script on it, and I read what it meant somewhere. Apparently, in Arabic, it reads, May Allah render eternal the dominion of Islam in this city. So I see that as being, yes, they were handing the key over and admitting surrender, but they were very much praying to Allah in the hope that actually Christian rule would be temporary and that Islam would come back to the city. I'm going to pick just one more painting from the entire cathedral, because this is the one with what I would call the best backstory. So it's Murillo's vision of St. Anthony, and to see that, you need to go to the Capilla San Antonio, so the chapel of St. Anthony, and you'll see this glorious painting of St. Anthony looking at the Christ child who's emerging from a beautiful luminous golden cloud. The reason that the painting is interesting is that it was stolen in 1874, in fact, or as one of the guidebooks I read put it, it was the, quote, victim of a heist. I thought that sounded rather modern for 1874. But anyway, the painting disappeared and wasn't seen again until the 20th century when it turned up in New York, at which point it was realised that some vandal had actually cut out the figure of St. Anthony and presumably taken it away. You won't notice this, hopefully, when you see the painting because they got art restorers on the job and got them to replace him, put him back where he ought to be. But you might like to just think of that as you're looking at the painting. If by now you're beginning to feel a little overwhelmed, so much to see, how are you going to remember it all, how are you going to choose, then you might enjoy a quote from Henry Swinburne, who visited the cathedral in 1776 and was himself really overwhelmed. The cathedral, he said, is more cried up than I think it deserves. And then he went on to explain what exactly it was that he didn't really like about it, using the following words. The cluttered pillars are too thick, the aisles too narrow, their choir, by being placed in the centre, spoils the whole coup d'oeil and renders the rest of the church little better than a heap of long passages. Oh dear, oh dear, I think if you think Seville Cathedral is just a heap of long passages, you haven't approached your visit in the right way. You've done too much walking around. So, having seen some of the things you really didn't want to miss, you have the choice of wandering around for a few more days or weeks, or possibly going outside for a breath of fresh air, which turn out to be a really good thing if you go out of the door, which leads to the beautiful Patio de los Naranjas, Patio of the Orange Trees. This is the original courtyard of the mosque, standing between the building itself and the archway that was the original entrance. 
again, there's a little clash of cultures going on there because beautiful though it is to have this wonderful Muslim archway leading into what is now a Christian church, you may be interested to know that actually there's a little inscription on it still there to this day, which reads in Arabic, the empire is Allah's. The original purpose of the courtyard was a place to stop on your way to the mosque so that you could wash, purify yourself before entering it. So you'll notice there's a fountain there still today. It's not actually the original one. And if you look carefully, you'll see there are irrigation channels crisscrossing the courtyard for the water to run away. Originally, 66 orange trees were planted here by the Arabs. The typical civilian orange trees of whom the fruit are very bitter. It's said, in fact, that a boatload of oranges was sold to British sailors and they were very pleased to take it for their journey home, thinking that if they ate enough oranges, they would be protected from scurvy. What they didn't realise was how bitter the taste was and it's said that although they did eat enough to keep the illness away, they had plenty left when they got home and sold them all as a job lot to somebody who had the brilliant idea of cooking them up and making marmalade. The very first marmalade, in fact, ever to have been produced. Today there are 40,000 orange trees in the city and 150,000 tonnes of fruit are picked annually. A lot of it is still shipped to Britain for marmalade. I think we might be the only country that likes marmalade. The rest of you don't know what you're missing. It's said, sadly, actually, that marmalade sales are falling. Tastes are changing. People either don't eat so much as they used to, or they prefer not proper marmalade made with much sweeter oranges. Anyway, the result of that is that some of these lovely oranges are now apparently used for fertiliser. Okay, and the third part of the cathedral, other than the building itself and the courtyard, that we want to linger over a little bit is the bell tower, the Giralda. The only other part, aside from the archway and the courtyard, of the original mosque. It was, of course, originally the minaret, built, or finished, rather, in 1198, and which has now been turned into a bell tower. Across the centuries, there's been a bit of a tussle over this building. Is it Islamic or is it Christian? I saw it described somewhere, actually, as Spain's most perfect Islamic building. But you have to say as well that when the Christians took it over, they added two more layers on top, put the bells in, and added a weather vane on the top, possibly slightly incongruous. But um, Mr Swinburne, who didn't like the inside of the cathedral too much, seemed to be more favourably disposed to this idea of bells and a weather vane on top of an Islamic tower, and wrote that they, quote, agree much better with the ancient building than patchwork is wont to do. So slightly a sting in the tail when he calls it patchwork, but certainly saying that it seemed to go rather well. The Spanish for weather vane is Giraldillo, and that's where the building gets its name from, the Giraldo. A 20th century travel writer, Jan Morris, who visited stressed the Islamic aspect of the building, writing about, quote, the massive pink tower of the Giralda above Seville Cathedral, which is one of the supreme monuments of Muslim engineering. But then you've also got Richard Ford, who visited in the 1830s and wrote a very much read tome, actually, or two tomes, called A Handbook of Spain. He travelled the length and breadth of the country, spent quite a lot of time in Seville. And one of his comments on the Giralda was about the reverence with which the bells are treated, the fact that they're treated, as he put it, quote, almost as persons. He explained that they were baptised before being hung, using what he referred to as a peculiar oil, and each one is christened and named after a saint, so very much the Christians stamping their mark again on this building.
Anyway, whichever you think, I think most of us would agree that as so many other places in Seville, it really is a blend of both cultures. But whatever conclusion you come to, I think most people would agree that it is a beautiful 104 metres worth of tower, richly decorated with geometric patterns, rather pink in tone and therefore especially beautiful at sunset, and with its gentle ramps that go up the inside, so wide and so easily sloped that in the 12th century when it was finished, horsemen could ride right to the top of the tower. So it's certainly a reminder of the days of Moorish Seville, when the caliph at the time, one Abu Yaqub Yusef, built a tower, which I'm sure he instructed architects and builders was meant to last, but which he probably didn't realise would make it through the various earthquakes and all the other things that have happened in Seville right into the 21st century and become a World Heritage Site. Leaving the cathedral then, I'd like to go on a little trip to the very close by area known as Santa Cruz, one of Seville's best known areas, an old part of the city, a labyrinth of tiny cobbled streets. You might know that its name, Santa Cruz, actually means Holy Cross, and that makes it sound very much like a Christian area, but actually that again belies reality, because originally when it was built, it was the city's Jewish area was in fact one of the biggest concentrations of Jews in the whole of Spain. They lived here very much a part of the city until the 15th century when the Inquisition happened. There was an edict in 1492, just exactly the year when Isabella and Ferdinand were going to great lengths to make Spain back into a Catholic country. Also the year, of course, when Columbus set off from southern Spain to conquer new territories. But alongside all of this went the feeling that the Jewish faith threatened the purity of the Catholic religion. The wording of the edict and the actions that followed were such that over the next few years, up to 400,000 Jews fled Spain, realising that they were no longer welcome and not likely to be safe there. Seville, I'm afraid, was really the headquarters of the Spanish Inquisition, a movement called by the traveller Richard Ford, quote, a tribunal of bad faith, bigotry, confiscation, blood and fire. A terrible period during which those not willing to confess their Christian faith, or those who tried to but weren't believed, were sentenced to death by burning. In the last 20 years of the 15th century, it's thought that up to 10,000 people were burned alive for that very reason, some of them actually on the steps of Seville Cathedral, and nearly 100,000 more were imprisoned for the same crimes. We keep seeing reminders of the Islamic occupation of Seville. There's less really to remind of the Jewish people who lived there, except that in 2012 a museum was opened called the Centre the, for the Interpretation of Judaism. It's in Santa Cruz, and that really does bear witness to all the time that they spent living there. If you go to visit, you can see items from Sephardic culture from the area. You can see manuscripts on the Inquisition. You can see a painting called the Expulsión de los Judíos de Sevilla, so the expulsion of the Jews from Seville. So at last, people beginning to recognise some of the terrible things that happened. Don't think you can mention Santa Cruz without pointing these things out, but if you go today to visit as a tourist, I think what you're most likely to notice is that it's an idyllic little area, tiny streets, cobbled pavements, Shops, restaurants, tiny little houses with beautiful patios, often that you can only glimpse from behind a metal grill. There's very much a sort of 
secret air of life being lived beyond the grill that you can't quite get to and see. Flowers, fountains, really exotic little squares that will probably have you snapping your camera. So just to finish off then, two quotations from travellers, one 19th century, one 20th century, who went to Seville and particularly fell in love with Santa Cruz. The first one is John Lomas, visiting in the 19th century, who wrote the following, quote, There are cunningly wrought and fairy-like iron gates, which only serve to set off an enticing picture of marble pavement, colonnade and fountain, in a farming of palmitos, bananas and lemon trees, with here and there a coquettishly perched cage of singing birds. In no other place is there a greater temptation to become the inquisitive prior into the domestic ways of one's fellows. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. They're such beautiful little places you want to get inside and go and have a look, and you can't. Visiting in the 1920s, V.S. Pritchett wrote the following, quote, In the Barrio Santa Cruz, where each street bears its name in large, simple letters that have been there since the 17th century, one seems to be walking on cobbled porcelain, and by the weak yellow light of the tiled courtyards, one sees the gloss of the evergreens and the ferns, the hard leaves of the orange tree, and hears the gurgle of small fountains. Darkness, jasmine, water, and white walls. So again, a lovely picture of that exotic atmosphere that you get in these places. But he goes on to talk as well about how the area has some lovely little churches built to bear witness to the Christian faith which took over when the Jews had been chased away. So about that he writes that, quote, One passes the sedate small Baroque churches which are like the ornate little drawing rooms of God and there one may see the pearled virgins or the carved Christs which are borne by the brotherhoods in the processions of Holy Week. So then, there you have it. One city, three major cultures, all feeding together to make it what it is today. And that's particularly noticeable, I think, in the area that we've been talking about. If you look at the cathedral, the Giralda, Santa Cruz, you really have got Christianity, Islam and Judaism all mingling layer on layer, just in a few small streets in, a, in a, an area you could walk around in perhaps half an hour. Thinking ahead then briefly to next week, I'm going to talk about Seville's Golden Age, have some stories and a look at some people from the 16th century, the time when people set out from Spain to conquer the New World and gave Spain, and particularly Seville, a new era of wealth and influence and power in the world, known as Seville's Golden Age. So all of that to come next week, but for the moment I'd just like to try out some Spanish again and thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias and wish you goodbye. Adios. Adios.